Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. All right, welcome to season two, episode eight of this season. I am joined today by Brianna White, who is a Johnson & Johnson Nurse Innovation Fellow, which is very exciting for those listening. She is the first Innovation Fellow and first other nurse, um, besides the people that I work with who are involved in innovation and the people that I follow on social media, that is involved heavily in developing innovation. I'm really excited to talk to her about this. She's a DAP student at the University of New Hampshire, adjunct nursing undergraduate and graduate faculty and home health care manager with a visiting nurse at Hospice for Vermont and New Hampshire, a member of Dartmouth Hitchcock Health. She has clinical experience from pediatrics to geriatrics, from inpatient, ambulatory, and most recently home care. She has worked as a clinical bedside nurse, a nurse educator, a nurse leader, and in her current role works to improve care of patients in the home setting through quality improvement. I love that. Evidence-based practice. I also love that. <laughs> and my lovey love innovation. Her innovation work is focusing on creating a framework for introducing innovation in home care settings through rapid review of key performance indicators. And her doctoral work is focusing on implementing innovative tools to improve communication and clinical outcomes of patients in the home care setting who have chronic conditions. She is passionate about sharing the various settings nurses work in, not bound by hospital walls, fabulous, working with the community to enhance care and mentoring others interested in innovation. Brianna, welcome to the podcast. Thank, thank you, you so much for joining me. I am thank really excited. Here. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, this is the first, well, third person I've met through social media to join my podcast recordings. But you're the first person that I think I've followed. I'm like fangirling here a little bit. Followed <laughs> on social media regarding nurse innovation that has been so passionate about nurse innovation and the processes behind it. And probably one of the first people that I've known to receive the prestigious Johnson Johnson Nurse Innovation Fellowship. So really excited today. I hope the students really get a good understanding of nurse innovation because I could talk all day long about it. One of my favorite <laughs> topics. But I want to know more about you first before we delve into that nurse innovation realm. So what was it for you that you just said one day, I'm going to be a nurse? Great question. So actually, recently, I've been looking at old photographs from my late grandmother. Um, and that's been helping me through the pandemic as we're living through history, kind of going back through history. And she was a nurse and she was an industrial nurse. And I found this amazing photograph of her in this stark white um, uniform contrasted to the industrial workers that have dirt and grime and sweat oh, wow. um, all around them. But she was responsible for their health. Yeah. And so she was the first one that got me started into nursing and already started in my brain to think about, you don't have to be in a hospital to be a nurse. Right. You could be literally in the coal mining fields or in the industry of wherever you are helping people. That's such a fabulous right. way of thinking about it. So did you go automatically to get your bachelor's in nursing and that's it? Did you start anywhere before your bachelor's? Yeah, so actually my first job in healthcare was as a home health aide. 
um, unlicensed without my LNA. So I would go and spend some time and help with a, a few chores. I went into my bachelor's program um, at the University of New Hampshire, but through that, at some point you could uh, sit for your LPN. So I did that as well in between the summers of school and I loved it. I did a little bit of home care, a little bit of camp nursing and it gave me a different perspective, um, you know, in, in bridging that LNA to the RN role. So quick question, cause you're the fir- also the first camp nurse I've had. What is camp nursing? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> right? I think of Boy Scouts, but this could be way different than what I think of. (laughs) Camp nursing was my first ever true nursing job. I started as an LNA assisting the nurses and what they were doing and then soon became the nurse. So I worked for a camp for children and adults with disabilities, which brought its own challenges, but you're there to administer the meds. Um, You're there to ail uh, you know, different illnesses that come along the way. For me, in my camp, I was packing wounds, hanging G2 feeds, giving complex meds to many different patients, stopping seizures with the uh, VNS magnet. It was uh, an, an intense experience, but it really got my passion for uh, having every single day be different. Wow. I, I can only think of when I worked for a traumatic brain injury rehab company that, and I was on a nurse during this, during this period of time, I was what they call facilitator. And this was my first job out of my baccalaureate program of philosophy. Long story short, I fell out of nursing school, graduated my degree in philosophy, went back to nursing school. Anywho, here we are, but <laughs> um, work for this company that was, it, it's such a fabulous company, um, but you're giving these meds to these, to these patients, well, clients, we call them, that you have no, like, as a non-nurse, you're like, I don't even know what these do, but I just know that they help the patient, right? And so wow. I couldn't even imagine having a little bit of education and knowledge and attempting to give these these things to these people thinking, okay, th- this is safe. This is safe. Can't. <laughs> and I think I say that now because of when I work in a hospital, you have to scan meds, you have to verify the meds. And these things are not necessarily- um, right in the forefront of our minds when we think of camp nursing or even in camps or in long-term care facilities. Right. And I would say, I definitely echo that. I think it's such a different world. It's not meticulous, you know, sometimes in camp nursing, depending on the meds, you only get a certain supply. So if a pill falls on the ground, sometimes you have to dust it off and make the best of it. But five second rule, it's fine. Right. It's fine. It's fine. The passion in that was seeing people with disabilities who are often um, limited by societal norms to single environments really get to explore and be themselves and be free and go swimming and go on a canoe. And it was an amazing experience. Just a lot of work, (laughs) a lot of you're on your own, you're a MacGyver, there's not as, as many of those safety nets. Um, so working together with non-medical personnel uh, to make the, the safest, safest experience possible. So this was a camp that really was for those with disabilities. Yes. And not necessarily a camp for Boy Scouts, like I thought when I was <laughs> nursing, which is, you know, I, I don't know many camps. I, I am going on a limb here of my um, naiveness that, because you live in New Hampshire, you, you perhaps have more camps around and more of the nature experience than you would where I'm from near Philadelphia and currently live near Hershey, PA. 
And yes, so- definitely. There's lots and lots of camps. And I think I know a lot of my colleagues from the University of New Hampshire did that as their first job as well while they were waiting for their nurse residencies to open. That's really cool, though. You know, that's such a fun, like, <laughs> like we hear people here, like, work for, like, Hershey Park before they get their first jobs. <laughs> and it's like, that's great. You, you ride roller coasters all day long. But to really serve a patient population before you even get your job has got to be one of the more rewarding things you can do before becoming a nurse. Yeah. And I should say a working nurse with your RN license. Absolutely. That's so awesome. And then when you even mention camp nursing as you're a MacGyver, I love that show. And I love the concept <laughs> that you just brought up that perhaps, and I'm, I'm just going on a limb here was probably your first, you know, step into innovation that really led your spark. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, if you, you don't have an IV pole to hang a, a G-tube bag, so you use a bookcase or, you know, it's going to be really hot. So you, <laughs> you work with the counselors to devise this cooling fan contraption so that it still enables the camper to be with their colleagues, but still provides them thermal regulation when they don't necessarily have that with their own diagnoses. So really thinking outside the box and then also with a team. And I think from that start, every single job that I've had, I've always looked for how can we do this in a different way or how can I use my strength as a creative person and healthcare worker uh, to the best of my ability. That's that's so awesome. I, I, I just love that concept <laughs> so much. It just reminds me of like my childhood really and just putting things together, not necessarily in, in like healthcare realm, but just putting things together and tinkering with things and trying to build things that I saw on TV and then make, make them try to, and they were the biggest failures, right? Cause there's not a prop on TV and it's not industrial standard, but trying to think of some best solutions of things or try to recreate something that I saw was probably the more engaging things that I remember of my childhood, which, which really is just a really cool part of your camp nursing experience as well. Yeah, That's awesome. Definitely. So reading your CV and thank you for, for sending this to me. What was your first nursing job? So I, I noticed that you have this leadership education in neurodevelopmental and related disabilities. And then I believe your first role is located somewhere around the time frame of 2013. Um, and so did you graduate and then get a job right away? Did you go through that developmental program during your first job? Yeah, so I am, uh, again, my, I think my theme is the path less followed. So I graduated with my undergrad. <laughs> And I saw this uh, program, which was sparked from my passion for working with children with disabilities. And the acronym is short, it's called LEND. Um, and it's a government funded program that teaches you about how to um, work clinically with children with disabilities, how to advocate for them and how to be a leader. So the funding for that actually paid for an exact year of grad school through that program, I also got to go to DC and advocate against some policy that would have brought seclusion and restraints for kids in school, which is not science-based, is not ethically based. Um, so that was an amazing experience. But I <laughs> saw that opportunity to say, I can stay an extra year, um, work a little bit on the side and pursue my master's. So I don't recommend this to many, but I tripled up <laughs> my master's program while I was in this additional program uh, so that I could financially be better off at the end of it and not have to take out any more loans than I did for my undergrad. And it just really taught me uh, a little bit of the side hustle that you're seeing now we're gonna you know, talk about, but also 
how to work, how to time manage, and then through the program, how to work with teams and how to be an interdisciplinary team member when you have so many other priorities going on. Wow. I mean, I'm a, <laughs> I definitely did not go that route. And I, you know, but I, I find that some people, you know, when I meet my students, just really have this clear thought in their head. And I know you mentioned the path less traveled, but they have this clear thought in their head of, of what they know that they kind of want to get themselves into. And so they go for it and they open themselves up to such great experiences that oftentimes it might not lead them to the path of like, oh, I know what I'm going to do after this, but they have ideas in their head that spark so many other things that even if they go and work for a hospital being a bedside nurse, which there's nothing wrong with that um, for those listening, but you have this experience now for you being a policymaker and a policy and a change maker within an organization and you have that skill set now. And so those things are just as important as, you know, joining a council structure in a hospital or, you know, um, becoming a part of a local organization that has nothing to do with nursing. You know, perhaps you go and volunteer for a food bank or, you know, some other kind of program within your community, which may have other things that advocate for people at the national level. Right. And Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's really awesome that you got to do that because, you know, a lot of us are stuck in this realm and this mindset of, I have my bachelor's or your associates or your diploma, and perhaps you go back for your bachelor's. And then you have this mindset of, well, I should go either be a nurse practitioner or a CRNA. Those are the, those are the two most common post-baccalaureate degree <laughs> pathways for students. And I'm always like, give yourself five years of your time of doing whatever you want to do really, right? It might be being a bedside nurse. It might be tripling up and going for your master's and your mm -hmm. and other certificates and being this person who serves in DC and really experiencing the richness of what nursing could be. Yeah, absolutely. I think any experience, no matter how weird or different or uh, outside of the box from the traditional pathway adds to whatever your, your, your passions are and adds what, to whatever you want to do for the future. That's awesome. And so you were also a charge and clinical nurse at Dartmouth Hitchcock. And then this was a, this is a huge unit, 18 bed unit treating children with, it sounds like all sorts of different, <laughs> all sorts of different illnesses and disabilities if you can, if you could go into that for some, that'd be, that'd be phenomenal. I've met a ton of nurses. So the program I work for, um, they have a lot of, a lot of, um, interest and I don't know, I don't want to call it, you know, something that it's not, but it's, they have this like undying love of serving children. And so a lot of the nurses that I see want to automatically go into peds. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, I know what I wanted is peds, but I really want your take on it, on what peds is like outside of the realm that they see, because it's a very, it's, you know, a couple, couple hospitals and what it might be like in a, in a different world. Yeah. So I empathize with you nurses because I felt the same way. Um, again, I started out with that passion for children's disabilities and the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock was my first um, clinical nursing job in a hospital. So I did my nurse residency there. 
It was amazing. Children are so resilient. So I worked with children. I became uh, chemo certified at some point. So I was given, you know, chemo to patients. We had patients with cystic fibrosis to surgery to psychiatry, um, everything under the sun, you know, new babies born to moms. Uh, In our area, there's a high epidemic for opioid overdose and misuse. So we would take care of those babies as well and really work with the mom and the families to try to get them uh, to where they wanted to be. So the passion for peds, I will highlight that it's not sunshine and butterflies as uh, sometimes you can be misled down that path. It is a a hard but rewarding path to go down. Every single day for me was different. Again, our unit was a mashup. Uh, That unit has transformed now, right as I had transitioned out of there to a a med surge, a progressive care and a PICU. So I got to see that side of that as well. And that can be really challenging, especially with some of the child abuse cases um, and some of the unfortunate events that come in through the PICU. But I've also seen the other side of that for med surge to, you know, the PICU of being able to step in and save a child's life, whether it's through, you know, the oncology treatment or through resuscitative efforts. Along the way, along the spectrum, you have to be comfortable working with the patients and families. That's one thing that drew me into that. And I think that foundation, even if you're you're not a true peds nurse or that's not where you want to be, that has set me up for all of my other um, paths down the down the road as well. It's always not just the patient, it's the patient and their caregivers, their family, what is their community life like? So PEDS is amazing. It's not sunshine and butterflies, but the experience that will get working with families and the um, different specialties that you don't have to pigeonhole yourself into um, from some of the traditional pigeonholes that you get into in adult nursing mm-hmm. is really rewarding that can transfer to adult nursing as well if you choose that down the road as well. I'm really glad that you brought those up in that, A, it's not sunshine and, and butterflies and rainbows always. And I try to remind students that because it is it is a super hard job to be a pediatrics nurse. Uh, more so, I think, than being an adult nurse um, sometimes with different necessary like skill sets. But for instance, I could never, I could never put in a teeny tiny IV, like, you know, <laughs> could never do that. I would, I just don't have that in me. And it's okay for me to know that just like, it's okay for you to know mm-hmm. that you love peds and you're great at peds. And, you know, one of the things that I also am very open and upfront with my students is that I am not like, I am not capable of mentally handling an abused child mm-hmm. or a child that needs resuscitation. I hope that I never have to use those skills that I learned in my ACLS class. Um, I'm not, you know, a, a PEDS, um, a PALS, excuse me, certified nurse. Um, but it's one of those things that for me is very difficult to even imagine handling. And I don't think that my mental capabilities would be able to to grasp that concept that somebody could do this to someone or that this kid needs help because of this this happened to them, you know? Um, and I think, I'm so sorry. Uh, just one of the pieces I would just add for, for me, anyways, and I'm an extreme empath. So I have a lot of empathy and I understand what people go through. One of the things that has helped me along the way for that piece, um, 
is our hospital provided a lot of training and education, which was wonderful on this non-judgmental care. Mm. Even mm. so, again, like I think to your point, some people just, uh, it's not within them. It's not, you know, it's, it's better to appreciate that and understand that and to choose a different path yeah. if that's not who you are. For me, I've been taught and I've internalized um, the cycle of trauma. So to give myself empathy for others um, in that situation, what helps me through, and it could be true or not, is that I tried to think of what has this other person also gone through in their life that was traumatic to lead them to the decisions that they've made to do this. It doesn't excuse people from doing wrong things, but I think in lots of other nursing fields as well, such as um, you know, prison nurses as well, you have to mm. sometimes shift your thinking. And you also, like you just said, I so appreciate you having that insight to say, that's not me. Yeah. Or, that is me. So yeah. I think choosing what's in tune with who you are and, and what your, what your jazz is, what your jam is, uh, and, and making it yours, I think is really important. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up non-judgmental care because, you know, oftentimes when, elderly trauma happens, you know, you try to think of, well, I don't understand their life and I'm not going to understand their life. So I'm not going to judge anybody for the life they've lived. And additionally, when, at least in the adult world, when patients come in with complex medical issues, you don't give judgment to those patients because of the way they live their life. You don't know their life. And, and furthermore, I think that another bridge of non-judgmental care perhaps is the ability to not judge your own self for the empathy and feelings that you feel. Yeah, I love that. That's a great way to say that. Yeah, because I mean, I feel like we hold on to a lot and I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm an empath. I have no clue. <laughs> I say that because I have a very easy time just kind of like letting things go and not really thinking about them and, you know, just kind of moving on. But I do think about things a lot. And for those that are empaths and they feel that deep connection to a case or care or you know a particular day that they've had it is really important to to think about forgiving yourself for those feelings because it's okay to feel those feelings mm -hmm. you know especially anger frustration guilt happiness all that stuff it is really okay to 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 feel that and to even express that so Absolutely. thank you so much for, for for bringing that up because that is such an important part of i think not only pediatric nursing when I speak to a lot of different students that want to do that, I'm like, okay, this is what it is. But also for nurses that may, may be feeling a burnout of some sort, that it's really okay to, to feel that burnout. Great. Absolutely. Um, I'll add one small quote. Yeah, love that. <laughs> that. So through the pandemic, one, one quote that I came up with was to have grace with yourself and others. Mm. Every time I have trouble with myself or I'm, you know, hard on myself or hard on others. There's a, a great um, video out there from, uh, I believe it's the Cleveland Clinic and it's all about empathy and you never know what battles others are facing. So that helps me to give grace to, towards others when it's hard to do. And then I constantly have to remind myself to do that to my for myself as well. That's such a great quote. Oh, I love that so much. Have grace with yourself. Mm, so good. <laughs> So then you moved on to becoming a clinical nurse educator for maternal child health, and then transitioned to P, uh, PD, PICU clinical nurse educator as well. So 
So did you go into maternal child health to help with what you were seeing on the unit as a, as a charge and, and nurse? Um, so the role kind of evolved as hospitals always do. So it started kind of big. So I was the nurse educator for the intensive care nursery, the birthing pavilion, PD and PICU. And then they recognized, I think, that targeted education support for distinct units or specialties was more important. So love that role. I love teaching new grads. I love to be able to dive back in to help um, with some of, you know, the quality improvement initiatives from an education standpoint. Uh, but again, I kind of kept having this pull, this magnetic pull for me to go more towards the ambulatory, the community side. Yeah. Uh, so I loved it, but I, I once I was in it uh, and the role was a glamorous title, I still just didn't feel like it was meeting all of the strengths and passions that I had. So then, so talk about that clinic role because not many people I, I have spoke to are primary clinic nurses. I know one person from my graduated nursing class that went into being a clinic nurse at a pediatric um, clinic somewhere in life. But what was it for you that really sparked that interest of working in the community? Yes, yeah, so the, the pediatric supervisor of the clinic position was awesome. So it's this untapped nursing path that we don't know about. And I think what helps me to explain it is if whenever you call your doctor for yourself, your family members, most of the time who's taking that issue, that problem, that concern is a nurse. So there's a nurse behind that coordinating hundreds of requests that are coming into the office, managing what they can within their scope, and then collaborating, communicating uh, with the providers and the team to meet the needs if they can't. And it's this bridge, like those nurses are underrecognized and undervalued. They're often the ones keeping people out of the hospital. They're the ones that are connecting um, patients and families to socioeconomic resources outside in the community. Um, and they're kind of what somebody in the ambulatory world when I got there explained to me that this is where life is. So this mm. is this ongoing care and coordination, um, I think, you know, you said there's a lot of nurses that go into nurse practitioner roles. This is a great stepping stone for that too, to see how that works. But there's so much bread and butter in working and collaborating with the families to keep them outside of the hospital. So that was, was thrilling to me to find that setting and to see the power of those nurses work together. Yeah, that's a really good point as well, because nurse practitioners have clinic days. And so they'll see patients in follow-up care and have to make phone calls. A lot of a lot of times, I, I want my students to see what nurse practitioners do outside of the hospital, because sometimes it's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of making sure their prescriptions are filled. It's yes. a lot of you know insurance. making sure it, insurance is <laughs> probably the number one most biggest headache of a nurse practitioner's life um, in different states for different reasons. I just took a, an entire health economics class, and I just was shocked at what health insurance really is like you kind of learn it in your master's but if you get into a good dmp program and they and they really you know drove into health economics it really is so much different and so much more complex than what people even know mm -hmm. and simply just choosing your plan every year is like <laughs> the top of the iceberg shall we say <laughs> and not necessarily um you know, what, what goes, you know, in the deep levels underneath that. Right. 
Oh man, such a good. <laughs> so I, I I am pausing because I'm, I I have so many th- thoughts in my head right now about health insurance, and I don't want to. <laughs> so I'm assuming then that from your clinic experience and your love and passion for the community outside of the hospital setting traditionally is perhaps maybe what led you to a home health care manager. Yeah, so this was a new role for the agency. So we're unique in that our agency is connected to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health System. Not many agencies are like this, but this new role um, was set up so that they needed somebody to work on care paths, so looking at quality improvement and creating evidence-based care models for these patients to, again, keep them out of the hospital, keep them where they want to be at home. And there's this element that I saw, which I would also love to pass on that your job description, your job title doesn't tell the whole story. So Mm -hmm. in talking with the team and reading the job description, I saw this um, unwritten nurse innovator role in there. And that's what I have worked to shape it out to be. So the territory and home health and I think an ambulatory care is unwritten, is untapped into. And for me, that is so thrilling, so exciting. Um, you talked about the peas nursing thing. So I, uh, my population now um, is 70% Medicare, which is uh, our older adult population. So right. I have had wow. to get over <laughs> my love of peds to go back into the community. But when I've looked at data, when I've recognized our state is one of the one of two, well, I work in New Hampshire and Vermont, and those are two of the um, older communities in the US, I felt that my skills and abilities could really contribute to the broader community in this way. And by diving in into another population, although uncomfortable, would not only make me grow, but you know, enable me to spread my ability to help um, in a different, larger way. Yeah. I literally remember following you on Twitter and and we'll give everybody your, your, your Twitter, Twitter handle as well. But I remember you being so excited about this new job. Yeah. And I was like, how is hospice exciting? <laughs> right. And I like, I, I think uh, that's, you know, I had to go through my own journey too, to say, is this it? This is not a traditional path. This but, isn't but, a tra- you know, to be fair, yeah. your, your entire life is not traditional. No. <laughs> and that's the greatest part, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying I, I never want to work in hospice. I just like wanted to pick your brain so much about, about how you came to this like spark of genius that said, this is going to be the most innovative process for me <laughs> to make this my life. Like, I think this is where I need to be. Yes. And I think, uh, you know, I looked at what home health was um, and saw so many opportunities for, you know, while going through school and while learning more in my master's and my DMP program, I continue to see our goals are to keep people in the community, improve their quality of care, improve their chronic health but our resources, our funding, our innovation, our schooling, our curriculum is all geared towards inpatients. So I am a trailblazer in some regards and I needed to step into this space to understand it so that I can help advocate and move some of those resources, some of that, you know, brain power to that space. And there are great people in that space already, um, but we just need this opportunity to come together and to really understand what we need. and the cool thing about home health, if you're a data nerd, there's tons of data through the government, through Medicare. So there's this 
big set of data which nurses need to step into as well from an informatics and data analytics perspective to understand from a clinical perspective what the numbers are saying to then find what things we can do for innovation, process improvement, quality improvement, um, et cetera. So I think you can sense I was very jazzed up about going into this unchartered uh, territory. Yeah, that's awesome. I And, you know, while I was doing some data research of my own to find some background of heat maps that I created for my stroke app, there's tons of data around home health and outside of hospital realms and ambulatory care and things like that and um, diagnoses and risk factors and so much that doesn't necessarily translate as you will to inpatient care because the inpatient world is basically like on a case by case basis if you're if you can understand as a listener what that might mean to you in term in that you know you're a patient you go into the hospital for a set amount of time that your insurance kind of determines and then if you need more care so be it but that's what care coordinator and social works for and then you leave and so that data is only a small snapshot and so home care and community-based care and other data realms and data sets are so broad that they have, I mean, millions of data sets, I'm sure, mm-hmm. probably billions, if you really think about it, that you're right, needs nurses to step into those realms and not only be be nurse innovators in, the, in these things, but you need to be that nursing informaticist. And I'm thinking of my colleague and friend, Lisa, who I had on episode four, I think, or five. And she just went on about, and she, I could talk to her for days about <laughs> data and stuff. And um, I don't know exactly what we're doing, but there's a lot of like community health data sets. So if your organization is doing a community assessment or excuse me, a community needs assessment, that data alone is worth so much of your time, of your energy to just read and, and, and ingest and use because that is data from the community. And we don't use a lot of the resources for hospice care. It's all private pay, mostly anyway. There's some that are accepted by health insurances, but for the most part, you know, there, there's there's only a finite amount of things that we're doing currently, at least at least from my experience, mm-hmm. from what we said patients into hospice care. I think we, we finally this year or two years ago, we developed a hospice um, cart that has you know, resources for not only adults, hotels, restaurants, things like that, but also for our pediatric um, people because their parents that are not, that, that they're being placed on hospice and they're, and they're their grandparents. And so if they want to come in and, and see them or experience something that we have to be, you know, more attuned to that, but we wouldn't have that unless somebody thought of this idea of, hey, we should probably do something about that and create this innovative process around helping, you know, kids be okay with their loved ones dying. Right. Anyway, that was a, that was a big whole, <laughs> big whole <laughs> spiel about things, about data and, and hospice care and home care. So, so sorry, I digress. <laughs> it all matters. It's all, I'm, I'm speaking your language. You need all of the, a nurse's eye to move things forward, especially in terms of data in these untapped uh, areas. Yeah, it's so important really quickly about your presentations that you've done and 
You went to, to Amsterdam? <laughs> yeah, so it was an amazing, amazing trip. That sounds Best amazing. apple pie of my life. <laughs> I've been to Amsterdam. It's amazing there. Yeah. Their espresso and their little waffles. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, so we, I, I worked with a team when I was the educator um, in PD PICU, and we created this interdisciplinary, multi-departmental, multi-role crisis simulation um, to get our teams working together and to get our teams to mimic a crazy day when you'd have multiple chaotic crises admissions at the same time. And how do you pull from a small, a large but a small hospital with smaller resources to still meet all of those needs? And it was an amazing experience. And we did some research showing um, uh, piloted improved communication when we're able to do those um, scenarios together. So we presented on that. And it was amazing to just see other people around the world talk about simulation and the future of simulation. So that is a, a small passion of mine. And I haven't dove in into that path as deep, but the world of sim simulation is changing and it's going to be our uh, practice runs for actual clinical care in the near future. I can, I can see that coming. Yeah, and I can also see this as being some sort of um, thing that you do for your home care, especially because there's there's no simulation, at least in my experience, that has really brought the home care aspect and hospice situations to the forefront. Right, and Great. even and even communication as well. I mean, yeah, that's huge because when we see families that and i mean now especially with covid right before covid when you could have like 20 family members at the bedside there was still a very important need for communication of symptoms what to look for things like that if if we were to withdraw on a patient now for certain organizations you can only have one or two people at the bedside to be with that person while they go through the dying process and so communication becomes that much more important because you need to explain to two people who then need to explain to probably a couple other people mm -hmm. about what's going on. And is it the same now with, with COVID? Is it, the, is it like a lot of restrictions when you're doing hospice care? So um, for our teams, again, we try to be as patient and family centered as possible. Our guidelines have changed a little bit about um, who wears a mask and if at all possible when the clinician is in the home, we try to limit the amount of people. But again, the home is their territory. It's we're not the ones that are dictating what they do or what the rules are anymore. It's their rules and we come in to facilitate their health or their uh, better death experience. So, uh, you know, working together with a family to meet those goals is important. You just said something that sparked one other thought that I had. So in communication, not only with families, but with um, interdisciplinary members as well, nurses spend a lot of time in space translating mm. this communication back and forth. And what I had this epiphany the other day is that we need patients, families, other interdisciplinary members to work towards having that same language so nurses can take their time from translating to transforming and really oh, yes. move into that innovation space. So as much as communication is important, we need the world to get on our page and also be translators as well. You, you have just said it all in that in 30 <laughs> seconds or less. Oh, goodness. I, um, 
I had the the fortunate privilege of taking care of a trauma patient who survived their their horrible trauma and speaking to him and translating what the physicians and the surgeons were saying takes up so much time and i will also say like there's there's a whole paradigm shift right now with visitation policies and so for certain organizations there's no visitation policies with exceptions right there's like if you're if you are actively dying if you're super unstable or if you're a pediatric patient um i've seen those those types of exceptions i've seen no visitors at all anywhere in the organization i've seen two people but what it comes down to is you know translating the pieces for the people and so in my world there's a lot less stress though with less visitors in the organization and i think that needs to be studied that's a whole other idea of mine but or someone can do it that that's cool too take take time off of my <laughs> off of my shoulders <laughs> but the stress level the unknown stress level i should say that family members do place on nurses to translate communication perhaps is one of the biggest factors of why time is taken away from the patient itself care and and really transforming that patient instead of translating all the time like you just mentioned right. i mean i think that was just a, such a poetic line that you just said i just man, I just want to grasp it all in and like digest it. Cause I'm like, yes, you've just said so much, but you know, I mean, you are so right. Like it's just so much time and I'm not complaining, you know, about any sort of patient care or families being there because it's such an important role of a family member being at the bedside, but there is that, that unknown stress, especially in ICU care, which is where I work of constantly asking questions, constantly, constantly needing things, needing things. And I think when you when you say translating versus transforming, me getting a glass of water while spending majority of time translating is not me getting a glass of water, caring about that glass of water, giving it to you. Does that make sense? Right. And I think, you know, what what that just made me think of as well um, is if that's the case, and I think that's a great study uh, to be had is if there's perceived less stress for family members what is it that we can partner with family members to help us with? Mm-hmm. What's What needs to be in our control and what doesn't? And a lot of that anxiety and stress is from lack of control of the family members. So what yes. can we put them in control of yes. that then frees up our time to you know, work with interdisciplinary members and then help the patient in a different level as well? So I think we are in you know the year 2021, but we still haven't figured out excellent clinical care yet and that's where I see nurses make it filling that space and and bringing these thoughts to the table we just need a louder voice yeah and really getting nurses to have better leadership skills at the bedside because when you when you just said that that sparked a whole you know flashback of a ton of different nurses I've worked with and been a part of and even even in my organization outside of my organization that are very nervous about bringing certain things up and it's, it's okay to be, you know, I'm not saying it's not okay to be nervous. It's very okay to be nervous. You're going to be nervous as a new nurse, especially, but when you develop these skills of therapeutic communication of effective communication and really start to hone in on things such as the healthy work environment aspect, 
you then become that nursing leader of the patient and the bedside. And that's, I think what people don't realize bedside nursing is, is how do I, how do I direct clinical care to be in such a way that my priorities are this and I have to, and I have to get rid of all the other things that are happening outside and prioritize my patient care so that my best abilities are there to suit the patient and kind of like therapeutically communicate to the family this is what it is. This is what it not is. Right. It isn't, excuse me. That was bad. Poor grammar, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I uh, man, that's a, that's a, a number, uh, another topic I'm going to write down right now. Anywho. So <laughs> congratulations as well on being published the journal of continuing nursing education in nursing, the clinical arts educator role, which is a changing. I mean, even that title has changed um with, yes <laughs> with 2020 i don't even know what it's called now but there's a there's a larger role in that so now moving into your johnson johnson nursing innovation fellow i have seen this and i was like i don't even know what that is <laughs> i had no clue there was even an application process this was long before i even knew nursing innovation was like this bigger overarching aspect and my nursing innovation knowledge at the point where I like had heard and read about the bios of the fellows was there was a program up in Boston and that was about it. It wasn't as big as it is now, right? Right. You didn't have this like buzzword of nurse innovation, of nurse innovators, boot camps, which camp is kind of like a sort of term. Um, You didn't have a lot of these workshops. You didn't have um, hackathons. You didn't have all these things. So how did you how did you find out about this program and why did you apply? Good question. So I am so, so honored and thrilled to be in it. And it's, you know, a little past a year in the making now. It's an inaugural two-year program. Mm. Um, I applied because I saw it on social media. I looked into it and I said, oh my gosh, like, I think my heart might have stopped (laughs) momentarily. I said, this is me. I've always been in a different path. I've always thought a little bit outside the box and they're going to be able to give me the tools and, you know, the knowledge and not only that, but the network to make big changes within the healthcare system. So I really applied not only to enhance my skills, but to bring it back to my little New Hampshire, Vermont community and really be able to share it with others. I think I've been a clinical adjunct teacher since I've started at the clinical, you know, bedside role. And like you do with students as well, like it's really important to turn around and pass on your knowledge. And this is knowledge untapped into that's growing and evolving as the role of the nurses. So super excited um, to be in it. Again, the people that are are in there are amazing. The fellows just blow me away with their different projects and their backgrounds. And we're all from diverse places and backgrounds and clinical areas. Um, so it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Are you able to talk about like what happens in this fellowship? Sure. So it's a, a two-year program. Again, COVID put a little, uh, <laughs> a little roller coaster in that. And what it is, is it's mentorship. So one-on-one mentorship. And um, we work with Nurse Approve, which is Noah Handler, Rebecca Love, and Nancy Hanranen. Um, and they help us with understanding nurse innovation, with giving us focused feedback on our projects. 
We also get leadership support from the Center for uh, Creative Leadership, and they are helping us in our journey to understand leadership and grow over these next two years. Um, and then really it's this network. So with COVID, we've been meeting monthly and we've met amazing nurses like Robin Begley from AONL, um, many, many different nurses to share their insights on where the opportunities are to transform healthcare and then how do you do that? And for me, what has been new to me is this entrepreneurship business side of, of mm. nurse innovation mm -hmm. um, that is also untapped. And I yes. think the world is evolving. Like there's a chief nursing officer for Microsoft. I think there's I gonna be- I just saw this and I'm like, right? how do I get that job? <laughs> <laughs> it's evolving. All of the big tech companies are looking to go into health and products need nurses. How many nurses are listening saying, oh my gosh, I used all of these different products and nothing worked. Nothing we need I nurses know. to be heads of those companies and to make those decisions and partner with those companies and the engineers to uh, transform that. And, and just be at the table. But, yeah. Yeah. Right. And just, yeah. And just be, be a part of that process, I think is so, it's one of the things I've been trying to champion is that you know there's this whole thing where companies will come to a hospital and they will have their product right and they are not really necessarily healthcare background folks right. and what i mean by that is they do not have their degree in nursing physician respiratory therapy they're just kind of like people who want to make a buck right okay and that's great they do a great job at selling you a product they also do a great job at trying to get intellectual property from you which I find really bothersome now that I know yes. more about intellectual property, right? Because how many times were you asked, probably in your PDD unit, of could you give us some feedback about this product? Right. And I was like, oh, sure, you know, this is great, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then I started realizing those are my thoughts and those are my ideas. And I'll never forget, like, one time more recently, I, I told my nurse educator, I was like, you really shouldn't be telling them your feedback about this product and unless you sign a contract stating that you're going to receive, I don't know, 5% of whatever. Right. And she was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like, don't do that. <laughs> so when, when we spread more knowledge about entrepreneurship and nursing, that alone is, is number one, as well as so many other things. Have you been a part of any kind of product like that, like, like support of getting things out there for nurses? Not, uh, not yet, although I've been in close um, work with my company, or not my company, my colleagues um, and their companies. One of the things that I would say is to look into, if you're a new nurse, look into your hospital's IP policy. Mm -hmm. um, there's trend-setting ones out there, like Mass General gives 30%, I believe, um, of IP to the person that creates it, which is pretty healthy in the terms of the community, but um, there's some places that are 100% owned by the company or the yes. hospital. So yes. think about that. And I think this is the untapped area where it gives me great pride and uh, excitement going to work each day to say, where's the gap? Where can I improve? What mm. innovation can I come up with next? That is the next step to keep nurses interested in nursing, especially in you know, the bedside spaces, especially in these non-traditional outside the box type of spaces. Um, we really need nurses to get involved with this to keep them in the nursing profession. I totally agree.
So then, so what is your DMP product going to surround? Is it going to surround innovation and kind of like getting out there with it? Yeah. So I am really going to, my Johnson and Johnson um, fellowship project is going to be looking at creating this framework for people to uh, rapid test innovation in the home health setting, uh, looking at key performance indicators. So I want to help people understand how do you look at numbers to make sense of what you're doing and how do you do it quickly? Because we know innovation, we know science takes a really long time from start to finish. So I want to get them there rapidly. I want to take my DMP project and test it through that framework. So That's awesome. I want to start simply by using communication tools such as whiteboards in the home and piloting that to see if that improves outcomes and uh, reducing hospitalization. So it sounds simple, but that's another key takeaway from innovation is you start with a really simple thing and you expand on that and you grow from that. Um, so it doesn't have to be complex. You don't have to be an engineer. I'm not, my husband is, and he's brilliant. You start simple and you find the need and you use your unique passion and strengths and abilities to make it happen. <laughs> oh, so good. I'm sorry. I'm shaking my head. Yes. I'm like throwing my hands in the air. I'm sure, I'm sure Brianna thinks I'm nuts at this point, but you, that is exactly, exactly it that I try to tell my colleagues of who have asked me, you know, how do I do this? I'm like, solve a very simple problem, a very simple, get to, get to the nitty gritty of what your root cause is of your problem. Right. And you're right. Whiteboards don't sound that snazzy because we use them all the time in, right. in hospitals, right? But we use them all the time in hospitals. <laughs> but we don't really use them all the time in hospitals. <laughs> and, and you and I are laughing at that, but the people listening, hopefully right. they know what we, what we just mentioned, but whiteboards are there, but it is, there is like 95 projects per year in every hospital nationwide, that's like, well, how can we better utilize a whiteboard? <laughs> I'm going to go on a limb here and say whiteboards are probably not our answer, right? In the inpatient world. But whiteboards for hospice care, home health nursing in a, in a house that maybe is, is supported by a grant to, to purchase the whiteboard because they're not cheap and hanging them and all that stuff while, you know, people are going through medical care issues and spending money that way might be one of the biggest innovative approaches to that particular practice. Right. And I think the other thing to uh, another takeaway is, you know what, it might fail and that's okay. And in nursing innovation, it's okay to fail forward. So that's been hard for me as somebody who's a perfectionist and likes to have all my ducks in a row. This is like not, not comfortable for nurses because we dot our I's and cross our T's, but take a risk and that's where you're going to get the reward or the benefit for your patients, for your community. Um, and feeling comfortable uh, in failure is something that one of my colleagues in the fellowship has taught me. So Joanna um, is one of my colleagues and she teaches design thinking and has told us about how hard it is for nurses to get over that. And I believe that as an empath, as you stated you were, it's even probably harder to accept failure because you don't know how you're feeling about yourself. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that is like a huge barrier, as you will, of well, how, how do I give myself grace to fail? Right. right. As you mentioned, how do I accept this failure and how do I forgive myself for feeling in such a way that I'm, that I am so passionate about what I'm doing? Right. And I would say, just as a quick example, um, with COVID, 
I had a really great idea with a team of nurses to create this EpiPen-like vaccine distribution. So you'd get a vaccine for COVID mailed to your home and we would give you a video and you'd self-inject it. Soon after, there was a law that was passed in the U.S. that enabled pharmacies to <laughs> deliver vaccines, and our whole model was built on, you know, vaccine delivery. You could pick it up your vac from your local pharmacy. So it failed, but it was a great idea, and we networked together, and you know, we moved forward. So it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to fail because also, and I've just had this conversation this morning in a meeting I was virtually in, um, where you learn so much from failure. And you not only perhaps might, like your your, sing, your your singular idea that you just had with self-injected vaccines might not work, but failing forward, as you mentioned, might enable you to discover a new way of approaching your idea. Right, absolutely. Was there, was there a, a, any more discussion on, on this, on this topic or is it like dead in the water? Because um, sometimes, sometimes you do have to like cut things and you're like, yeah. well, it's not gonna work. So for now, it's dead in the water just with the, the resources and I think the new vaccine. I think there's opportunities for the future, but again, align. What I also had to realize too is I needed to align my passions with my and my innovations with my work. And mm. I don't know a lot about <laughs> vaccine delivery or the vaccine creation process. I learned a whole lot about it along the way, but my passion right now is home health and how do we keep people um, where they want to be at home. So I've shifted to do that, to bring myself more in line with who I am and what my passions are. Yeah. And real quickly, you mentioned quality improvement and being able to really get that faster. What are the metrics that you look for in home health and hospice care? Because I have no clue. Good question. So there's, again, so much data. So the 30-day rehospitalization rate is one. Um, one of them that I'm looking at is we actually measure improved function from the time we admit them to home health and the time they leave. Um, I'm not as much in the hospice space in my current role, but for home health, the some of the quality measures will look at and uh, uh, how many falls you've had while you were with us. It looks at dyspnea. And that's really interesting to me from a chronic heart failure in a COPD um, position is how can we improve dyspnea over our time instead of going the opposite way? And what parts of having shortness of breath or dyspnea are surrounding that? And what innovations or evidence-based practice can we use to attack that, which may then go back to some of those other um, key performance indicators like hospitalizations. Yeah. Wow. I don't think I've ever really thought about all those metrics that you kind of watch out for. I, I feel like I tried to, to, to kind of like pay attention to those things. Cause you, cause in the inpatient world, you do see 30 day readmissions, you see heart failure exacerbations, but when you mention things like dyspnea and how often the patient has dyspnea, that's a whole other avenue of what to look for and what to look at because dyspnea could mean that their heart failure is getting worse and thus making more 30-day readmissions but right. why are they but why are they having dyspnea you know are, are they eating too much foods with water in them are they intaking too much fluids all this all this crazy stuff that even lends itself to new technologies that can be developed as well right absolutely have you seen any of these technologies like like the heart failure anklets and socks and things like that? 
Um, I haven't. I know that there's talk about remote patient monitoring, and I know mm -hmm. that there's places that use that. One of the two things I'd like to just say about that is that as nurses, we need to be advocates for the, the key performance indicators or the symptom management that makes the most improvement or that the patients care about the most. We can talk about rehospitalizations. People don't care that much if you're a patient about hospitalizations. It keeps our businesses going, but what matters to them is if they can't do an activity because they're short of breath. So yes, yes. How, can we, how can we get around to meeting all of our mutual goals? Um, and then just with any technology, if you take one step back, sometimes two steps back, it's often a nurse on the other side of that in healthcare. So using nurses, even if it is technology, to improve that is really important. So remote patient monitoring is something that we look to in home health. But again, it takes a nurse and critical thinking from a nurse to make that all work. I don't even know what we learn as nurses to make us drive the way that we do in terms of, of, of the things that we care about. I have no clue. I don't even, I just remember learning to be a nurse and, and all these things. And then all of a sudden, like we have this like in somehow of what to really care for and what to really look at in terms of like when patients get discharged. And I think it's because we don't have this overarching view of what healthcare should look like. We have very distinct views of, okay, you're, you are the person, this is your chronic phase, this is your acute phase, because we, that, that's how we learn. Right. And listen to what Brianna is saying, people, when you become a nurse, you need to pay attention to quality indicators. I don't care what kind of field you go into, it is really important to do that. And I tell my students all the time, this is what real nursing is. It's not textbook, it's not NCLEX, great, you pass the NCLEX, you got a whole heaping lot of knowledge to learn in just your first job alone, that's going to be, you know, this learning curve just shoots right up that right. it's going to be overwhelming, but you need to learn how to handle those things. Right. So you mentioned a little side hustle. What is that? <laughs> so I think my side hustle right now is adjunct teaching. So I love right. teaching online. I love helping students. But I think in the future, I'm really looking into how do I take some of my knowledge, like you said, my IP, my intellectual property, mm. and make that financial sustainable for myself and my family so that I can not only help improve healthcare, but also take care of myself and my community um, as well. So I don't have much in the works right now, but I think for nurses to think of that, that's very strange as well. And it is promoting them to know that it's okay to go into that space, um, especially if it's something that you're passionate about, because we just for so long have not thought of nurses going into that space that I think that's the untapped uh, next territory in healthcare. I think nurses often think of nursing as I've joined the, the ranks, and so I must climb the ladder. And what I mean by that is a lot of times nurses look for traditional leadership positions such as assistant manager manager as the next step up a ladder when it's actually right. a totally different profession would you agree absolutely and i would say um instead of thinking about ladders think about crossroads and these off beaten paths um, that you can take and 
again, it's about looking out there to see what's out there, but it's also about looking in and seeing what aligns with what your passions and who you are and your experiences are at that time. And it's not, I think as some of us have gone through traditional school that you pick one area and you stick to it, that's not the case anymore. So it's okay if it's not your passion, you know, three or four years down the road and you need to move into a different un untapped path. I'm trying, I'm finally, you know, moving myself into a mixed ICU, <laughs> not by choice, <laughs> just because of my COVID, because I've been on my unit for 10 years and neuroscience is literally all I I've done. But that is absolutely correct. If you are uncomfortable, you don't know, you know, if this, you know, profession of, let's say, med surge nursing, GI patient care is for you, it's okay. There's so many different other realms of nursing out there and things to explore. Right. And just like you had mentioned how you had this like untraditional path of being a nurse, the same thing rings true as positions in hospitals. And so you've had so many different positions and have moved over like all these different realms and have found a way to communicate and connect with patients and think of innovative ideas along those ways and even present those ideas, which is, which is even more like valuable, I think, as a nurse than simply, quote unquote, climbing a ladder. Right. Absolutely. Intersected, yeah. Intersected those crossroads. Learn how to write an abstract. Learn how to publish an article. These things become your intellectual property. And these things really drive your value of your own brand that I, you know, brand is a huge word that you as a nurse could make your own website and promote yourself and who knows, make your own eBooks. I don't know. <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I hope someday you, you develop a, like an eBook or something about, I don't know, home care. Right. You know, and, right. and what, what makes home care so much cooler than inpatient care? Right. Because I had a podcast recording a couple of weeks ago with a nurse from Canada who loves long-term care. <laughs> And I love meeting nurses who are so passionate about things that is non-traditional or non-traditional paths of nursing, just like you and home care hospice. It's not a non-traditional path, but everyone thinks, you know, if, if you really think of nursing, everyone assumes that you work in a unit in hospital. And rarely do I ever get the chance to sit down and ask questions to someone about home care or long-term care. Right. And, you know, those are, those are really exciting niches to get into because just like you mentioned, there's so much potential and untapped potential in there. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, again, looking to who you are and then looking to what's available, knowing that you may not be taught in school that those are the opportunities, but that there's a space for you. So I know with COVID, um, there's been a lot of burnout and there's been contemplations about leaving the nursing community as a whole before you do that pause and say, have I aligned myself with the congruence of who I am and what my passions are? If you have, then I have grace with you and respect that. But if not, turn a different path and try something else out that may not be bedside nursing in the middle of a pandemic. That's okay. We yeah. need you in different spaces within the nursing community. And we need you more in those spaces than not having you there at all. Yeah, try try to pivot yourself and be and do something different, like start a podcast. Or yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the 
most exciting part of my 2020 was starting this podcast and here we are in 2021 and it still drives me to have this passion for nursing i mean because to be very honest i've worked in covid units i still work in covid units it gets very dismal at times shall we say and can get very depressing and you know it's not every day is certainly not rainbows and butterflies but i have always found my internal drive as what outside of nursing but still within nursing can i get involved with that i can still find passion for and really drive home of why i became a nurse in the first place right and to that point going back to to what you've spoke about with your ip protecting that even in times of covid you might have ideas about how to improve things you might have you know questions about things things to research look up you know protect those things right yeah absolutely and i think again partner with your hospital so even if they do have um, an ip policy that isn't to your liking have a conversation about that. They may be interested in talking to you and learning more that you're passionate about that and what your ideas are and, and sharing that you want to share your ideas with others, but you need to work with them to make that a little bit more palatable to move forward. Yeah. And I, and I quickly wanted to ask you before that thought escapes my mind, because I've tried to explain it to a bunch of people, but explain why 30% of, if so if an organization is going to give you 30% of the amount of money you make on a product. Why is that good? <laughs> good question. I think it's best if you, if you had a hundred percent, but the hospitals often will back you with resources, back you with time. You're kind of getting some of their IP too with making your invention or your idea based on your, your experience or your care area. So there has to be a little bit of give and take I don't know the perfect number. I think it's not zero for you. Um, so again, I think it's a it's a different space. I think it's evolving. I think different companies are looking to gain more knowledge from healthcare workers. So continue to advocate for yourself um, and continue to find where that push and pull makes sense to you. Yeah. Have you been successful with a hospital and, and intellectual property and going through the process and getting funds um, at all? Our policy for Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, was in the works of being revised when I've transferred to the visiting nurse, um, but I would say that they're very open to talking with me and thinking about this and benchmarking to other places as well. And I think it could also be a recruitment tool. So mm. um, that's a really interesting twist as well. Yes. Ooh, I'm going to hold that one in my pocket for later <laughs> when I go to like a council meeting and be like, hey, so did you know this could be a good recruitment tool? this well do you have anything else that you want to discuss today i would just you know advocate again that if if you're not feeling congruent with what you're doing look around and then look within um and take the path less traveled and that's okay to take and you can be a trailblazer um so so find out who you are and then find out where you're going and the beauty of it is it's a journey and there's many paths in that forest that was so beautifully said. Brianna, <laughs> I also wait, like to write too and do poetry. So <laughs> that's where that comes You're from. You're like, oh, I just have this skill in the back of my pocket. It's fine, guys. I'm really actually a poet. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Brianna White, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I look forward to hearing all about your journeys and please come back on the podcast to talk all about any innovations that have been published and protected, of course. 
and new ideas that come across because I'm sure the students want to hear that. I can think of like three students of my own that I hope will listen to this particular episode about innovation because one nurse, he was so passionate about like new ideas. He's like, you have just lit so much in me. And I'm like, that's all I can really ask for <laughs> that I spark something in someone to really get out of their skin and really just, just be vulnerable and do something. Yeah. I love that. And I, I thank you for your time as well. And I would just say for students, a lot of us um, have these biased eyes in many ways uh, around what we're, what's going on in the world, but you bring this new energy, this new creativity, this new fresh perspective of looking at it that have that as your value and, and who you are as well in your journey. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.